0: Welcome to Diversity Beyond the Checkbox, brought to you by the Diversity Movement, where we discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion topics with leaders that make our world a more welcoming and supportive place for all. We can't wait to share with you what's coming next, but in this compilation episode, we're looking back on the conversations we've had with DEI leaders from season three, as we get excited for the next season coming in June. Also, I wanted to let you know about a couple exciting updates from the diversity movement. First, we have a new podcast called Winning with Diversity, where our VP of Business Strategy, Shelly Willingham, talks DEI through a business lens. Specifically in the first series, how you can think about DEI while working in a startup. Go check that out on any podcast app and we'll have a link in the show notes. So without further ado, here are some of my favorite moments from diversity beyond the
1: checkbox.
2: I was a senior manager in a company and the company was thinking about moving its corporate office. Mm-hmm. And everything they talked about when I went to the meeting was all about the pristineness of the environment, playing golf and all those kinds of things. And they pick some locations. And I remember saying, I appreciate these wonderful looking places that you guys pick, but the areas you're selecting to move the corporate office is like 0.00005% Black, let alone minority in general. Yeah. And you know, I brought up conversations and things like, so you guys do realize that my wife wouldn't have anywhere to go to get her Black hair done because nobody will understand it my kids would be not only the only black kids in the class, but probably in the school and possibly the neighborhood based on the places you're looking at. So when I brought some of those things up, it meant absolutely nothing. So it's things like that that I like to mention because those are the things outside of the work that a lot of black executives don't know. When you start moving up, it's conversations like this that just make you say, wow, what, what exactly do I do here if we move these offices?
0: What do you wish everyone knew about people with disabilities? What do you want to share with our listeners about people with disabilities and what they can do? Um, you know, how amazing and special they are. You want to talk
1: about that a little bit? Okay. With people with Down syndrome like me um, they should feel special for who they are and they should they should um, embrace who they are and feel special in their own skin and Mm -hmm. be who they are Sophie
0: that's good advice for all of us isn't it to Mm -hmm. feel good in your own skin and appreciate who they are I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Why do you think organizations are hesitant about employing people with disabilities?
3: Yeah, I think that unfortunately there is, I don't know if stigma is the right word, but people see differences as scary or unknown as opposed to interesting um and i think that that's a big societal mindset that i'm hoping three two and coffee can be a part of changing and so for a lot of people if they didn't have or don't have um a personal connection to someone with a disability they just may not know about that whole community you know they don't know how to interact with someone if they see someone who's nonverbal? they don't know how to have that conversation Mm -hmm. Uh, which is understandable but i think that something that i'm excited for 321 to be a player in is showing that yes there are differences but that doesn't divide us and there are are so there's so much value in these conversations in these relationships um and i love to see the perspective and the mindsets changing from customers that come to 321 Especially because if you walk by our shop, you know, the name 321 Coffee doesn't scream anything about disability, you know? So a lot of times people will come in because they see the word coffee and they're like, oh great, I just want a cup of coffee. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone's in front of them with autism taking their order and they see somebody with spina bifida steaming the milk on their latte. And they've got someone with Down syndrome chatting with them as they wait for their drink. And it's just this whole diverse team and exposure.
0: Sandra, tell us why you're so passionate about women being financially empowered.
1: I find, and I, I say this with some delicacy <laughs> because I'm not saying that this only happens to women, but I feel like women have more obstacles. So again, it doesn't mean that men don't face you know some of the same challenges, but in large majority, I would say women face more financial challenges. And, and for instance, like what I mean by that is the, the most obvious, I think, the one that gets a lot more airtime is really around the wage gap, right, where women make $0.82 cents on the dollar for their uh, male counterparts. And depending upon your race, you actually might make less. So it's unfortunate, right, but it's real where just your earning power, one, is affected by that. Two. And again, I'm I'm giving my comments in very broad strokes. So I I don't wanna sound stereotypical, but it's just broad strokes here, in that many women, you know, if they have children, they tend to um, take time away from their careers to rear children, right? And it's a personal choice and it's not a wrong choice. But the potential impact to that is at a later stage, if they decide to go back to work, if they even decide to do that, many times they're not on the same trajectory that they once were. And so the types of roles they're able to, um, to attain and then commiserately with that is like the level of income and earning power is at a lower level than what it would have been had they stayed in their careers, right? So you have the wage gap and then you have that potential additional factor, and then in a lot of households, again saying this without a judgment <laughs> on it, but husbands oftentimes still manage the finances, and um, it's great that they're loving, trusting relationships. Um, you know, the women are, are fine with the husbands doing that, but fundamentally, that puts them at a disservice where they don't have a good understanding what their financial situation is. So I joke around and I say, I'm not here to cause marital discord, right? <laughs> and I'm, I'm not saying like change that dynamic, but at minimum, be educated and know what decisions are being made and actually know what your financial situation is this
2: stop.
4: I think it's, it, it's key to the whole mindset around diversity and inclusion is shifting from this mindset of we've got to help those poor people To, know we've got to level the playing field so everyone can be successful. I'll I'll give you an example. Employers for years have said, oh, we can't have remote work. We can't have remote work. People won't be productive. Mm -hmm. And there were two groups in particular that had been asking for remote work, a great deal. Women, particularly Mm -hmm. new mothers and people with disabilities. Well let's have a pandemic to prove that we can actually make it work. That's right. And we've made it work. And now we've got employers who are saying that they're gonna have digital by default as the standard and they're gonna cut back on office space and they're gonna have people work from home. Like, okay, we've been saying for decades that we could make this work. And now that it's working for the majority instead of just the minority, we're all about it. Right. Why can't we make something work for the minority, and then have everybody benefit?
0: So let's talk about why hiring people with disabilities is good for business, and why employers need to be more inclusive.
5: I love this question. This is my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> um, you know, disability inclusion is really—it's an opportunity, and it's not a chore and hiring people with disabilities and illnesses is good for people and in turn it's good for companies and so the more we have these inclusive and accessible flexible workplaces and policies really this is the key to helping everyone work better and so the businesses that actually do foster strong inclusion programs have better access to talent and they can find the right person for the right job and so these businesses they have higher employee retention And in turn, they also have the tools they need to help their employees thrive. And so I always love to just kind of reiterate the fact that hiring people with disabilities is good for business, but most businesses aren't, you know, either they don't know or they're not taking advantage of that fact. And so with Chronically Capable, we're we're really trying to bridge that gap. As a DEI leader,
0: I found that people often don't have access or experience with people from the trans community, and so they avoid conversations as to not offend. But in doing that, it makes people feel excluded and unwelcome. Let's talk about some trans basics. What are some things that we need to know?
6: It's really interesting, because a lot of employers that I work with say, Oh, well, we've never had a trans employee, I don't know how to have these conversations, to which I respond, well, you've never had a trans employee that you know of, right? It's quite possible they've not come out yet, or they're you know, living stealth, right? Which means that they just don't tell anyone. So already it's a bit too late for these conversations that employers are not having. But some basics that are really important to know are just to be open, honest, and always take the lead of your employee, right? So if an employee comes out, instead of being like, well, I took this training, which is good, please take trainings, but say, okay, this is what I've learned in this training. How is this applicable to you? And how can I help you? Because I could sit here and list, you know, the top five things to know when working with a trans employee Mm -hmm. and your employee will come out and it's absolutely not applicable to that employee. In a nutshell, the great answer to that is take as many workshops with varying different facilitators because we each have our own perspective. Mm -hmm. And then when you're ready to have those difficult conversations, follow your employees.
0: Why do you say that it's okay not to be okay when that's not how we're we're taught as we enter the workplace?
7: It's tough. Um, even in my first jobs after graduate school, it's. I was 22. I had my master's. I was younger than some of the students I was working with at the time, and I felt like I had to compartmentalize who I was. This is professional, Alyssa. This is personal, Alyssa. You only talk about the professional in that space, and I have to look like and act like the people who are working there, and I was almost morphing myself into somebody I really wasn't. And I continued to do that for a little bit. And I saw other people and other colleagues do that to try to fit in. Because we say this idea of bring your whole self to work, but sometimes we really mean bring your whole self to work if it looks and acts and feels like the majority group that's there. Mm -hmm. And that's not okay, right? You're going to feel like somebody who's different. It's very hard to compartmentalize who you are, especially with everything just in general going on in the world. And we might be experiencing the same events but are taking them in very differently based on our experiences and how we're processing it. So it's very important to me to continue to get this message across that everything's not okay and it's it's okay that we're in that space and to keep growing and learning and developing. And it's important at professionals at any level to create spaces where people can feel valued, people can feel heard and bring themselves because you lose a piece of who you are and several pieces of who you are when you're trying to
8: compartmentalize something. I think with any of us others, there's always going to be some nuance or difference that we need to think about than kind of the norm, quote unquote, or more the larger population. I think for queer folks, though, one of the things that I think is the opportunity, you know. Disney, we never said a problem. We said, you have an area of opportunity. And I think this is the area of opportunity wow. is, is for us to own our authenticity and make sure that we're out. And you know, the latest studies by the human rights campaign said still that about 50% of LGBTQ Hulu people are not out at work. And mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's the latest one they haven't brought out the next one. You know, and I'd be curious to see, does the, the SCOTUS ruling from last summer about Title IX and all that good stuff, see how that plays out? But regardless, 50%, in 2021, half the people from my community are not out at work. And that's, that blows my mind for a couple reasons. One... Why? You know, I mean, like, and, and we all have our own reasons. Obviously, I was in that boat at some point, and I'm never going to out somebody or, or tell them you need to come out No, that's not my jam. But I do want to ask people why, because I know when before I, I owned my authentic self in the workplace, the jogging around of pronouns and what did you do this weekend? Who'd you do with? It? You know, like, uh, where's the pictures in my office or my cubicle? You know, all that stuff takes energy. And that's energy you could be focusing on to be a more awesome leader. Michelle,
0: what advice would you give to young professionals who are culturally diverse entering into this space?
9: You have to have a level of flexibility, but you also have to be really grounded and centered with people. When you work in advertising or marketing or any medium, or you're putting out content there is a level of responsibility that you have to Mm -hmm. do no harm to culture, to society. You see it with, you know, this phenomenon of fake news and misinformation and all the things that are happening. Mm -hmm. You have to really be conscious about what you're putting out as a creator, what words you're writing as a copywriter Mm -hmm. and the impact that it has on people because we have the, power to communicate to millions at a time in yeah. one shot. So as, you know, the cheesy Spider-Man say goes with great power comes great responsibility. You must take on that responsibility and take it serious. You know, consumers are, are not just data points. They are people. Yes. And, and people have pains, passions, joys, frustrations, and you can either be a, a positive force with somebody in their day or a negative force Or you can make them laugh or you can make them cry. You can make them think. But everything we do is about persuasion and influence. And we do it at such a mass scale as marketers that I I take that, you know, responsibility seriously. And I try and impart that onto the next generation. Like, don't take what you do for granted. A lot of people just want to look at the surface and say, oh, that's cool. We got to make a cool ad or we got to make something that was funny or we got something to go viral But how is that work going to be remembered in this space? What kind of impact does it have? And was it a positive experience for the consumer, for the people that are viewing that content or seeing that ad or listening to that podcast? Like what can you leave behind that people will remember in a positive manner? And that's what I try to impart on the younger generation.
0: As you've heard, we've had some amazing guests join us for some very important DEI conversations. And I'm so excited for you to hear what's in store for season four. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow this podcast so you'll be notified when we come back in June. Until then, be sure to visit thediversitymovement.com for more podcasts, articles, and educational content. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson, and I'll talk with you next time on Diversity Beyond the Checkbox.